Good morning. morning. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Aha! Caught you, didn't I? For the visitors that wonder why everybody is laughing, it's because we've been going through the book of Acts verse by verse. And in fact, it should have been Acts chapter 10, by the way. But uh, we've come to a juncture now in Christ building his church where we're going to turn a very big corner. As I said before, when you study the Bible, you study it on many levels. And sometimes we get bogged down in the details. Peter did this, Barnabas did that, Paul did this, and you just see them as disjoint little episodes. And we lose sight of the overall plan and operation of God, which really adds a whole dimension to the scripture when we see that, doesn't it? The way we've seen Christ building his church, which we've seen is much more than just adding numbers. It's like building a cathedral, he said. Building a cathedral is more than throwing stones in a pile. It's uh, shaping them, carving them, putting them in the right place at the right time and so on. Well, all those dimensions enter into Christ building his church. We've seen that. And it's wonderful. Now that we come to turning the corner and uh, reaching out to the Gentiles, we are turning a huge corner in the history of the church. And in fact, in the history of the world. This is a big deal. And uh, I want us to uh, really appreciate not only what God is doing here, but the word of God. It's when you study the Bible at this level that you really see Uh, First of all, the beauty of this book beyond uh, comparison with any other book. And you see the greatness of God as well. So that's what we're going to look at. The last week we left uh, the two key men that that God was raising up. Peter was in Joppa, remember, just on the coast. If you had your little map, you remember. And uh, Saul has now gone back up to his hometown in uh, Tarsus. And Jesus is positioning them now really to turn the corner and uh, he has pretty much, how should we say it, uh, harvested the Jewish believers out of the nation of Israel. They are slowly, the new believers are running out among the Jews and they're all turning hostile now. And so the Lord Jesus is going to use, think about it a second, to this point, all the Christians are Jews. And they're going to have to get the message that, no, you're not going to be going to Jews. You're now going to go to Gentiles. And we really have no comprehension how that would jolt and jar and offend Peter, Paul, or any of the other Jews at that time to think that they were going to be doing that. But that's indeed what God had planned all along. And now they need to get with the program. And for God to get them to turn the corner is going to take some major work. And it's wonderful to see God work this out in history and through his word. So you get the idea? That's what we're looking at here. It's a wonderful glimpse into the history of God working among men. And you never are going to read this in a history book in your school. It's only found in the Bible. Just to give you a flavor uh, of what I'm talking about, hold your place in Daniel. Go back to Acts chapter 11, and we'll look at one verse, and you see what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 11, we have a little summary verse here in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. There it is. That's the typical behavior of the first believing Jews. The, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He came for the Jews. So now that they're going to go out and give the good news of his coming and that he is the Messiah, you go to Jews. And it was the remotest thing from their mind that God is going to <laughs> literally lay aside the nation of Israel and replace them with the Gentiles now in the center of God's dealings. Okay? So that's, that's what we're going to be seeing here. And we're going to have a whirlwind tour 
of uh, the prophecy, back to Daniel now, of these four keystone verses in prophecy. Uh, I never cease to be amazed at the depth of these four simple verses in Daniel 9. They tie in so many other things uh, in, in the prophecy in the Bible. So we'll read them now, starting in verse 24 of Daniel 9. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your whole, for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. We're not going to study every phrase in there, but I want you to appreciate the incredible statement God is making here, particularly this phrase, verse 25. He says plainly, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven and 62 is how much? 69. 69 weeks. God, 600 years before Christ, wrote down the time when he would come. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing that in Micah he said the place, Bethlehem. But the time... Man, that's great. And as we're going to see, it works out right to the day. But there's a problem here. God has enemies. And they are going to do everything they can to thwart God's plan. In particular, the devil and all his cohorts. And they can read just as well as you and I can. And so we find that when God speaks so specifically in a prophecy particularly about his son he puts in enough fuzziness so that at the time you kind of scratch your head does that mean this or does it mean that until the the prophecy is fulfilled and then you compare all the scripture together and bing the light goes on and it's so clear i love it and so god right here uh tells in advance he's been promising this one to come all this time before this in the scripture the jews knew it the devil knew it and uh they wondered when it's going to happen finally he told them here this is incredible he gave them a time and uh the the devil is going to do everything he can to thwart it and we'll see how god prevented that from happening and in fact as usual turned it around and used it for his own purposes but i'm going to simplify things a lot for you here we're not going to look at all these phrases i just want to focus on this phrase uh, of the time between the first event which is the command to restore and rebuild jerusalem until what god says is messiah the prince and he says it's 69 weeks now the word week that god used here is different from the one you use for a week of days and i think it's really nice that he happened to put that word in here also just look over at chapter 10 verse 2 daniel says in those days i daniel was mourning three full weeks that word is the word in hebrew for a week of days like our week the word he used here in daniel 9 24 and 25 26 and 27 is another word and it simply means sets of seven sevens not weeks of days it just means seven somethings okay so at this point, all we know is if we just read this, 69 sevens, 69 times seven, there's 483 somethings that are going to happen between this decree and Messiah the Prince. 
Okay, are you with me? Thank you, Eric. Um, now, we could, we could kind of pretend we don't know and go on to it, but for the sake of time, we're not going to do that this morning. We already know that, that they're years, don't we? Because, um, there, by the way, we're going, to look, we're going to talk about them. There are four decrees in the scriptures which helps confuse the issue, which I think God deliberately did. But there are four decrees. They're all recorded in the Bible at separate times. They're all around 450 to 500 B.C. That's about 500 years before Christ. So one of those decrees has to be the right one. And since he said it's 483 somethings, obviously it has to be years. We know that much. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, But now Daniel didn't know that. The devil didn't know that. And let me tell you... uh, the devil knew the scripture backward and forward. And he longed to be there at the moment to, when the Messiah came to thwart God's purposes. Listen to this in a uh, passage that we know in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is saying there, if the powers that be, and he says uh, the rulers of this age in particular, among other people, that certainly includes the devil, uh, if they had known what God was doing, they would not have cooperated and crucified Christ. But they didn't. It's wonderful. God did it right under everybody's noses, including the devil's, and accomplished his own purposes. But the other verse I like on this is in 1 Peter It says this, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What's that verse say? It's saying guys like Daniel and Isaiah would write these prophecies about Micah, for example. You know, he just wrote. Out of thee, although you be the least of the uh, cities, out of you shall come one whose goings forth have been from everlasting. He wrote that. And he'd look at it and he'd say, wow, that's the Messiah. Now we know where he's coming from. And he'd probably go flip to all the other Messianic scriptures and try to understand more. Daniel, when he wrote this date, he must have gone, oh, let me see. Where's it? And the decree hadn't happened yet. And it's probably killing him, you know. But if the prophets did that, that's what that verse says. It says they, they studied and they studied and they, and they tried to put them all together and figure it out, but they couldn't do it. Part of the confusion came from the way God wrote the prophecies. And I, and I love this. This, this is a lot like, the way, like a, a, a detective novel or something, ex- except it beats anything Hollywood ever could ever come up with. God disguised the prophecies in another way. He would run the two comings of Christ together in one in one statement that's great and so these poor prophets and other people that are trying to understand they're reading along and it's talking about the messiah suffering and then the very next phrase is talking about his second coming well of course you know what they thought it's all one coming that's what everybody thought all the jews and i really believe the devil thought that too that when christ came he was going to rule and take the throne of David, which was the promise, uh, one of the promises that he would fulfill. So, let me, I'll give you an example of, of uh, this uh, running verses together. It's well known. Um, it's actually quoted in Luke. The Lord Jesus went into a synagogue in Caesarea, and they had him read a scripture that day. And they gave him the scroll for Isaiah. They didn't have a Bible they had scrolls. You've seen pictures of them, right? Really, they're about this long, and, and when they're rolled up, each roll is about this big. And so if you wanted to turn to a chapter, you'd have to roll them side by side, you know, and get there. So they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus, this is right at the beginning of his ministry, he, he rolled it open to Isaiah 61. Now this is what the verse says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Did you catch that? In that, in the middle of a verse, God moved from the first coming of Christ to the second. It stops here. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the first coming. That's what he did. But then it goes on to say, in the day of vengeance of our God. That's not until the second coming. You see that? No wonder they were confused, huh? But this is great. You know what Jesus did? As he's reading along, he reads, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped right in the middle of the verse. And in case there's any doubt, maybe he was interrupted or, uh, you know, maybe he lost his place. God tells us plainly. He then put the scroll down and closed it and sat down and said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in the hearing of your ears. Not the day of vengeance of God, but the proclamation of the gospel. Isn't that great? See, so this is, this is not unusual. There's a lot of scripture like that. And we know we have the authority to do that because Jesus did it. He stopped at his first coming. Well, it turns out that these verses in Daniel are just like that. In these 70 weeks, it sounds like it's all 70 weeks all together. In other words, the 70th week must take place right after the 69th week. It doesn't. The 70th week hasn't even happened yet. <laughs> it's still out there somewhere waiting to happen. In fact, it's not going to happen until the church is raptured. But uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves now. Let's go back to the, the actual working out of this prophecy. Um, imagine the prophets and uh, the devil in particular wrestling with the scripture and shortly after Daniel, the decrees start to come. And as they come, they're going, okay, there's the decree. Now, from this point, 69 more weeks have to happen and the Messiah is going to be here. Okay? I could just see it. The problem is, at the beginning, God said simply 69 sevens. They don't know if it's weeks of days. It could be weeks of months. It could be weeks of years. They just don't know. And I can just see it. Um, the first decree goes out and, and uh, 60, okay, uh, 69 weeks of days would be 483 days. That's a little over a year. And they wait with, with breathless anticipation as that year and 130 days goes by, or whatever it is, 80 days, and nothing happens. Okay, well, it can't be days. You know, maybe weeks, maybe months, each period. Uh, and then to confuse things, there were actually four decrees. After the first one, there was another one, and then another one, and finally a fourth one. And now you're going, oh no, which one do we measure from? <laughs> but uh, we can do today, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, as Christians in 2007, we can open our Bibles because God recorded all four decrees right here in his word. And it is so, what's the word, awesome, to be able to go through the scripture and look back in history and you can find the actual decree. There's only one that fits and see how the prophecy worked out to the very day. And the devil didn't know it. <laughs> it's great. So we're not going to take a lot of time. I'll just review. The first three uh, decrees are found in the book of Ezra. The two historical books dealing with the restoration of the captives after the captivity and going back are Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And the three decrees in Cyrus, uh, in, um, in uh, Ezra, they, they deal with three kings. The first one was given by Cyrus in 539 B.C. second one was given by Darius in 519. And the third one was given by Artaxerxes in 457. Now, remember our magic number? What was it? 483. Okay? 483. Now, would 539 B.C. work out then if we added for it? No, it wouldn't, wouldn't get us there, would it? So numerically, we know that that's not going to work. 519, same problem. Uh, the next one is 457. Whoa, now we're too close. You had 483 to that and you get about 26 AD. 
which is before Christ's public ministry. Huh. Hold that thought. We'll, we'll explain it in a minute, okay? But none of them work. <clears throat> You'd be amazed <clears throat> at the liberal, <clears throat> excuse me, scholars who take those three decrees, and you'll find a group for every one of them that says this is the one. The problem is they have to twist the rest of Scripture so much to get them to fit <clears throat> that you might as well not use the Bible. But you and me, simple believers, can take our Bibles and we can demonstrate that none of those are the correct prophecy. If you want to have an interesting exercise this week, read through Ezra with this in mind and say, can I find the decree that Daniel was talking about in here? Because the key to remember is <clears throat> the decree is to go and restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And as you read through Ezra, all you're going to find is decrees to go and restore the temple. And when God describes historically what they did, <clears throat> he keeps saying, and so they worked on the house of God or the temple. He never says the city. It's interesting. And so a simple Bible uh, reader like you and me, a, a simple Christian can look at that and say, no, none of those are the right ones. It's not until you come to the book of Nehemiah and the decree is there at the very beginning by Artaxerxes to dear Nehemiah who was depressed because Jerusalem, by the way, it says very plainly at that point, Jerusalem still lay in ruins. Okay? So that kind of dismisses the other uh, decrees, doesn't it? <clears throat> the city had not been rebuilt even by that time. And <clears throat> the decree is given. We know, we can, you can look at Encyclopedia Britannica or go online and find out the date of Artaxerxes' reign. He's a well-known ruler. And he tells us the year of his reign and the month. And based on that, this decree came in 444 B.C. You're not too excited, and I don't blame you, because 483 doesn't work out, does it? Hang on. It's going to work out perfectly. <clears throat> but what I want to focus on just for the moment before we resolve those numbers is the devil would know after having seen the city not being rebuilt after the first three decrees and after the one by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, it was rebuilt. So there's the decree. He knows that's the starting point. And I can just see him waiting as the weeks and the months and the years tick by. <clears throat> Finally, Christ is born. The devil had to know that he was the Messiah. He, he wasn't uh, limited by the vision we have. He knew this was God. Okay? Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. The devil knew that very plainly. We're around the 483 number. And so I am certain that the devil thought, okay, here he is. This has to be the Messiah. The problem is he's 40 years early. And so he'd go back to the prophecy in Daniel and he'd see the wording God uses. God said from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until, what's the phrase? Messiah the Prince. Ah. In other words, it wasn't until his birth. It was to go up until he was to rule, become king. Right? That's what I would think because he's already been born and it's only been 444 years. So uh, if you do the numbers, that means I'm sure the devil looked at this and said, okay, in 40 AD, he's going to take the throne in Jerusalem and rule the world the way it's been prophesied in the word of God. I got to stop that. Imagine the jig he must have danced when he saw the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews. He was behind a lot of it. He personally tried to sidetrack side the Lord himself. <clears throat> and finally it says that he entered Judas, imagine, possessed him. And in 33 AD, seven years ahead of uh, apparently when Jesus was going to reign, the devil saw him crucified and he must have said ah i thwarted him seven years ahead of schedule <laughs> little did he know he was playing right into god's hands <clears throat> and god's 
<clears throat> calendar had worked out perfectly. And it wasn't until 90 AD, about 60 years after Christ, that God gave us the key to unlock Daniel 9. And we found out that uh, the prophecy was exact right to the day. Okay. Are you with me so far? Most of you? Okay. We're going to see how it works out. And uh, a couple of years ago, we had a series on uh, Daniel 9. took three weeks. <laughs> and uh, we're not even going to do it in an hour this morning. So I'm just going to summarize for you <clears throat> how the numbers work out. You know that in the Bible, <clears throat> from way back in the prophets, there is a time that had been prophesied to come in regard to the nation of Israel. It's called Jacob's Trouble. There was a time that had been prophesied, a very bad time for the nation of Israel, where they were really going to suffer. There was going to be a bad time for them. Right? Most of you Bible students are familiar with that. Well, <clears throat> it's actually found here in verse 27 of Daniel 9. That's what he's talking about. That period. Thank you, Eric. <clears throat> Listen to this again. Verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. I'm not going to support it. I'm just going to tell you. It's in the Bible. That he is the Antichrist. <clears throat> the many is the nation of Israel. And the Antichrist is going to make a covenant, a treaty with the nation of Israel for one week, which we know now is seven, is, uh, seven years. Okay? Can't you see that happening in the context today, by the way? If particularly all the surrounding Arab nations say, okay, fine, the Jews can uh, have their worship on the, on the temple and we won't have any problem with that. We'll let it go on. Peace in the Middle East. Wow. Well, we know the Antichrist is not a good guy. And so it goes on to say, but in the middle of the week, that is after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And then we have this really kind of scary but vague phrase. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. If we just had this, it'd be a little difficult to understand. But if you link it with other scriptures, it's clear he's talking about the Antichrist turning on the nation of Israel and going after them big time. There are other passages in, uh, in Daniel, uh, Revelation, and in Matthew where uh, the Lord revealed in his word clearly that the suffering of, is of Israel is going to be due a, a lot in part to an individual. And this individual is Antichrist. And we find it in Revelation, in fact, that the Antichrist is empowered by Satan. <clears throat> so, why are we looking at this? Because... We know now that this terrible time for Israel in the last days is going to last three and a half years because of what God says here. Maybe if we follow that thread through the scripture, we might find out the key that will unlock, unlock the uh, problem with 483 and 444. And in fact, we do. Here, God describes the period. We'll call it the Great Tribulation because that's what Jesus calls it in Matthew 24. The period of Israel's suffering, the Great Tribulation, is three and a half years. Okay? Again, uh, if you like uh, mysteries and detective stories, listen to the various ways God talks about this period. First of all, half a week, three and a half. Elsewhere in the Bible, he refers to it as a time, times, and half a time. Isn't that cool? Well, I, I think it is. One, a time times two makes three and half a time three and a half isn't that neat other places he says 42 months and then three and a half times 12 is indeed 42 there's a key where he uses one other number and it's going to open everything up and finally you're going to stop staring at me like what are you talking about up here bella it's all going to make sense when we look at that last number <clears throat> um, as we read through it emerges very clearly that there are going to be the last chunk of the history of earth before Jesus comes to rule is a terrible time for the nation of Israel. It's three and a half years long. The Antichrist is going to be the chief character in it, but of course he's empowered by Satan to do this. And God did not give the key to unlock everything. 
until the book of Revelation written by John on the Isle of Patmos in 90 AD. So turn there. We're just going to look at this one section. <clears throat> Revelation 12. <clears throat> there are many parentheses in the book of Revelation. This is one of them. It doesn't always flow, boom, 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 from one judgment to the other. Often God will have a chapter or more of parenthesis where he describes a character or some event or something. Here, he pauses in chapter 12 to describe a character. The character is the devil. It's a very good summary of his career, by the way. <clears throat> now listen, and a lot of the things we've been saying so far are going to fit together. <clears throat> because you're going to see the devil, indeed, go after Israel. That's, that's his uh, purpose in life, among others, as far as he's concerned. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Yes, thank you, Tom. This is Israel, the nation of Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So now we have Israel brought to the point as a nation ready to give birth. It's giving birth to Messiah. We're going to find that out in a minute. But now he, he turns the focus to the devil for a moment, introduces the other character. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And listen to this. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Wow. Do you get that? This is the devil. Listen to this. The dragon stood before the woman, Israel, who was ready to give birth to devour her child, the Messiah, as soon as it was born. Remember what we were saying earlier? The devil was focused. And he was just waiting. And you get this picture here where the doctor's in the delivery room and the devil elbows him aside and he's waiting to kill the child as soon as it's born. Man, what a picture. And we know he made a great effort through Herod, don't, don't we? Can you imagine making a decree and having it carried out that all the children two years and older killed, not only in the town of Bethlehem, but the whole vicinity around it? That's how desperate the devil was to stop whatever God was going to do. But, of course, God's greater than the devil, and he'd warned Joseph in a dream. And they were out of town, praise God. <clears throat> and I can imagine just, he gets angrier and angrier, you know, as he keeps being thwarted by God. <clears throat> okay, well, in case you're not convinced that the woman is Israel and the child is Christ, look at the next verse. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, who's that? Duh. Yeah, there he is. Uh, and her child was caught up to God on his throne. There's the ascension. We're moving through history fast here. Now, God's going to do it again. <laughs> He's going to jump through history. You're going to think this next verse takes place right away, but it doesn't. In fact, it still hasn't happened yet. It's talking about the time when the devil, through Antichrist, goes after the nation of Israel, the three and a half years. And we're going to find our magic number. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. We know that from other passages. This is how God is going to preserve Israel in the last days. Some, the, the wilderness is the area around the Dead Sea and all those cliffs and desert areas where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's the number we need. It's going to be the key. We're going to come back to it in a minute, but uh, we'll see how Daniel 9 works out. We're going to read on, though. <clears throat> War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And there's lots of rejoicing in heaven. Why? Because they don't have to put up with the devil anymore. He's, he's not going to be allowed in heaven ever again. You, boy, you think they're happy? When does that happen? It happens at the beginning 
of the great tribulation. And it makes sense. When he's cast down to the earth, what does it say in uh, verse uh, <clears throat> 12? Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. He knows how long it is. It's three and a half years. What does he do? Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's what we've been saying. The devil goes after Israel big time. And we know for how long? Three and a half years. Uh, in case there's any doubt, he says in verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. There it is. We're on solid ground now. That's the same period. Time, times, half a time. There's that. Half of the seven. And we now know uh, from verse 6 that it's 1260 days. Now we can go back to Daniel 9. <clears throat> and apply what we've learned. If you, dis if you divide 1260 by three and a half, you get 360 days per year. Are you with me? The years are not full years that God was talking about here. When he says 69 sevens, he means 69 sevens of short years. You say, well, that's cheating. Well, no, because, <laughs> because he never said what the period was. He just said 69 sevens. He didn't say 69 sevens of solar years. He just said 69 sevens. And by the way, I have to agree with God. 360 is a lot nicer than 365.25789 dot, dot, dot. Don't you think so? In fact, it's so good. Many ancient civilizations went by a nice, 12-month, 30-day-a-month calendar, 360 days. And every once in a while, they just throw on five or six days to make it up. Worked out fine. <clears throat> so, not surprisingly, God chose this nice round number to be his length of time in the years. There's the key we were missing. Okay? Are you with me now? I'm proud of you. <clears throat> <clears throat> because if you multiply that out now, and if you work it out to find out now, we know the starting point, the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild the city. That's the starting point. We know the month. God tells us, Nissan. Same as the car, but only one S. And he doesn't give us a date, so we'll, we'll take the first of the month. And if we add to that, we end up coming to Monday before Christ was crucified. That's a wow. Thank you, Angela. I agree. But I know you're still disappointed, aren't you? You shouldn't be. Turn to Matthew 21 and we'll find out it fits perfectly from what God was saying. And by the way, along the way, we're going to read now Matthew 21 through 25 sometime. That's another exercise for you this week with, a, with new glasses and realize that this is the period where Daniel's 69 weeks ended. We're going to just glance at a few verses here so you can get the flavor of it. Matthew 21. We're not going to read it. You know what happens here. This is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Think about it. Isn't that strange? Think about the ministry of Christ. What happened all the times before when they wanted to make him king? He refused adamantly, didn't he? What's he doing coming in, presenting himself as their king all of a sudden here? It's the day that Daniel's prophecy pointed to. Remember, 69 weeks from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There it is. And, it's, and that explains this rather strange event where Jesus says, go get this donkey that nobody's ever rode on. You know, don't worry, the owner will understand. And bring it over here. And he goes and he rides. And they say, Hosanna, uh, the king, you know. The, the word king is here. 
Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. Very out of keeping with the rest of his ministry. Now, the point is, it's the final confirmation of his rejection by the nation because they don't receive him as their Messiah. When they ask, who is this? They say, oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from, uh, from Galilee. He's rejected. <clears throat> you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal is that at this point, Jesus literally stops the clock for the nation of Israel himself. And we're going to see him do it here. He literally, as God, takes the nation of Israel and lays it aside right before their very eyes. And they don't even know he's doing it. And he is going to now bring in another people, the Gentiles, and put them in their place. And that's the way we're living right now. We're so used to it. We think, well, that's the way it's always been. No, it hasn't. So let's watch what Jesus does here. And I wish we could study all five chapters here, but we can't. I'm just going to look at a few incidents and you will be able to visually watch Jesus lay aside the nation of Israel and fulfill the prophecy of Daniel 9 by ending the 69th week for them. Remember, the prophecy in, in Daniel 9 said, 70 weeks are decreed for your people in your holy city. The 70 weeks are for the nation of Israel. Well, 69 of them were fulfilled then. The clock's not running now. And it won't start running again until the church is gone and Israel is restored. Okay. Uh, right after, for example, his triumphal entry, and they ask in verse 11, uh, they had asked who this is. They, he's, they said, this is Jesus, the prophet from the Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee. The very next thing he does is an act of judgment. That's significant. He uh, judges the uh, money sellers and others in the temple. You say, well, that's the second time he's done it. What's the big deal? The big deal is the first time he did it was right at the very beginning of his ministry. And it was a warning to the nation. Here, it's one of the last acts he does in regard to the nation. And it's the act of judgment. They don't know it, but they're cut off from Jehovah. They're being judged. Uh, here's another strange incident, which if you don't know that this, this is uh, going on right here, it doesn't make any sense to you at all. Verse 18. Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now be honest. That's weird. What did this fig tree ever do to deserve this? It's totally out of keeping with the Lord Jesus unless we understand what he is doing. The fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. Jesus came as God to the nation of Israel to collect the fruit. And what did he find? Only leaves. Only leaves. They were dead spiritually. And so he did to the nation of Israel what he did to the tree. He cut them off. Now, not permanently. We're going to see that in a minute. But right here, they're cut off just like this tree. Without that, that, that episode makes no sense at all killing this poor innocent fig tree but in the light of daniel 9 it makes all the sense in the world because he is symbolizing with this act what he is doing to the nation right now as god isn't that incredible um <clears throat> okay we can't look at all of the parables in here i'd love to but i want to just glance at two of them in verse 33 uh he tells the parable well let's just read it here real quick here another parable, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Interesting, just like the fig tree. The uh, vine dressers are the leaders of the nation of Israel and uh, the vine dresser is God himself. The owner of the vineyard is God. The servants that he sends to get the fruit are the prophets that he sent over the years to the nation. What did they do? Verse 35, the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. This is the history of Israel, isn't it? Rejecting their prophets. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, oh, they will respect my son. I, I think I don't have to tell you what this is picturing, right? This is Jesus. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Wow. The prophecy that he'd be crucified outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Now, this is the part I love about this. He asks them. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? This is incredible. Listen to what the Jews answer him. They said to him, well, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. They're right. He's doing it right now. And they don't even know it. And he certainly doesn't argue with them. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? That's what they've done. They've rejected him has become the chief cornerstone, by the way, of the church. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Listen to this. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Isn't that great? You're watching God act in history. Nobody knew it at the time that he was doing this huge thing that he never said he was going to do, but he planned on all along after the 69 weeks had run out. And he's doing it right in front of them. We don't have the time. The next one is uh, the wedding feast. It's a king who gives the feast, interestingly enough, Jesus. And uh, the guests who are invited don't want to come. They're not interested. It's the nation of Israel. So they go out and they beat the bushes for the riffraff. And they come. That's the Gentiles, you see. He answers uh, symbolically the nation of Israel one by one by sex. That's really the importance of these remaining ones. First the Heronians, then the Sadducees, then the Pharisees. One at a time, symbolically, the whole nation before him. Then, of course, is that important section in chapter 23, the... Uh, seven woes on the Pharisees, uh, again, an act of judgment, declaring uh, the fate of the uh, religious leaders of Israel. We'll end with this one, not of the message, but in, in Matthew, because we've got to move on. This is so significant now, verse 37 of chapter 23. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's done it. He has cut them off. He stopped the clock. They're, they're ordinary people now. In fact, they're really... They're worse than ordinary because we know from Scripture he judged them. He, he blinded them spiritually. But he doesn't take delight in it. In fact, it's very moving. As he, as he has done the act now, listen to, listen to what he does. Verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That just, that, uh, it's a poetic farewell to the nation of Israel from the heart of God. He's speaking as God here, by the way. Because when he says, um, how often I wanted to gather your hens your children is as a hen and the and the talking about stoning the prophets he's looking back over their history as god the many times he sent to them and tried to plead with them as jehovah and they refused okay you following it um i think okay so we're done with the uh 69 weeks it works out to that and so that's what's happened to this point in the history of the nation of Israel. He's laid the nation aside. Now, what we've seen in the book of Acts so far is basically God collecting the gleanings, if you will, from the field of Israel. The, the remnant, there are some who believe. 
out of the whole population not many but some and pretty much they're all brought in now and so it's time to continue or actually to finish really what he started here and that is now to turn to the gentiles as the people with a favored nation status if you will the problem is getting peter and paul and everybody else to get in line with that they're not going to want to hear that and they're not going to want to do it and so that brings us uh to acts chapter 10 and we're not going to go through it today i didn't think we'd have the time to do it but let me just uh finish up in the gospels to show one more uh clear evidence that the lord jesus christ himself as god did indeed judge the nation of israel and cut, cut them off i'll just i'll just describe it to you it's in the gospel of john in the same setting after the triumphal entry the very next recorded event in there is so significant because certain people come and they say we want to see jesus and you know who they are they're gentiles that's right and jesus says something very significant at that point because he knows the 69 weeks are over and the jews are are out now and the gentiles are in because all through the gospel of john as you study it there's this phrase it starts way back uh, at cana when he answers uh, mary he says my hour has not yet come and he can and that phrase is continued either by jesus or by john as he writes it for his hour had not yet come his hour had not yet come over and over again you see this when the gentiles come and they say we want to see jesus jesus says the hour has come it is so significant he's saying so much there that's it the clock has stopped for the nation of israel and now it's time for the gentiles that's what he's saying by certainly uh referring to his own death coming up too because daniel has said after the 69 weeks messiah will be cut off all of those things come together at that juncture of time but he's saying he's looking at his prophetic clock that only he knew as god that's it the hour has come the time is here and uh, it's so significant if you read on in that section um john matthew is the book of the king and you saw that over and over the, the emphasis on his kingship in the gospel of john right after that episode john has that wonderful uh quote of isaiah 6 where isaiah saw the lord high and lifted up chapter 6 right of isaiah you know the, the story and john goes on to say he saw jesus in that vision and he reveals the deity of christ and then he goes on to quote isaiah by saying that he has blinded their eyes and uh hardened their hearts it's an act of judgment okay we went through a lot today if you got nothing else out of it i hope it's a just a wonderful appreciation first of all for the word of god uh we've started 600 bc and gone up to 90 a.d and it just fits like this doesn't it but also an appreciation of the greatness of god and the greatness of our salvation uh we'll never cease being amazed at the goodness and the greatness of god let's pray father how we thank you for your word we thank you for revealing these things to us lord it's so wonderful now to uh see you in action and and when we do see it lord we ask with paul who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor and the answer is no one you are a great god and lord greatest of all is the salvation that you have worked as we realize here was a devil out to thwart the coming of the messiah to the jews and yet you had a much greater plan than just sending a ruler for a small people you were sending your son to die for the sins of the world lord how great you are and we who know you just praise you and worship you this morning for this great salvation we have in jesus precious name amen